Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. Each week, we feature a new interview, narrated essay, or story, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. As we examine the root causes of our ecological crisis, we come to recognize our response requires a shift in consciousness to move past the patterns of exploitation and separation that define our present relationship with the earth. A radical transformation of our assumptions about the world is needed. Poet, translator, and author David Hinton, whose works are informed by ancient Chinese philosophy and deep ecological thought, advocates for a return to a deep kinship between humans and the earth as a way to ground our modern environmental movement. In his latest book, Wild Mind, Wild Earth, Hinton looks to the ancient modes of seeing and being, the practices of Chan Buddhism, the insights of indigenous cultures and romantic poets, and the nature of our Paleolithic ancestors as a way to rewire and rewild our consciousness. I recently spoke with Hinton about his new book, about reweaving consciousness and landscape, and how a wild mind in which there is no separation between humans and nature might help us navigate the sixth extinction with an ethics tempered by love. David, I, I want to start our conversation today by asking you to read a poem. The poem that underpins much of what you explore in your new book, Wild Mind, Wild Earth, an ancient Chinese poem that you suggest holds within it an ethics that we so desperately need at this time of great ecological crisis. Could you, could you read that poem for us? Sure. It's called Egrets. Robes of snow, crests of snow, and beaks of azure jade, they fish in shadowy streams. Then startling away into flight, they leave emerald mountains for lit distances. Pear blossoms, a treefall, tumble in the evening wind. So tell me about this poem. It's a pretty typical classical Chinese poem. It's short, four lines, five words per line, uh, written in the ninth century. And What's interesting about it is that it's all images. There's sort of no abstract, isolated self looking out on the world, thinking about it. It's all the, the immediacy of crystalline images. The interesting thing about this is after we see the egrets leave, suddenly in the last line, this, there's something completely different. It has nothing to do with the egrets. So there's this big a leap from the egrets leaving emerald mountains, and then suddenly pear blossoms, a tree full, tumble in the evening wind. Well, there's no kind of logical connection between those. There's a kind of imagistic connection because the egrets are small, fluttering white things going up. Pear blossoms are small, white things fluttering down. But why did we go from one to the other? And that's part of the magic. That's it's it's Because images have no kind of abstract, intellectual um, content. And then that leap between the two has no content. 
they're they're empty. See, the first half of the book is um, part one is called "How a Little Poem from Ancient China Could Save the Planet," which is meant to be in part serious and in part facetious. At bottom, what's driving the ecological crisis is our sense of being centers of identity. In the West, we call it the soul or the spirit that are radically separate from, distant from, detached from what we call nature. You notice the word nature and also the word wild. By definition, it incorporates these assumptions about identity in the world, and those assumptions are that nature is everything other than us. That is, we're not part of nature, and the wild is everything other than us. We're not part of the wild. We're something else. And that, I think, is what's driving the ecological crisis at, at, the, at its deepest level, because that distance, that separation, enables a kind of instrumental and exploitative relation to, quote-unquote, nature. In the moment of kind of pure perception like this poem is presenting, that self, that detached self disappears. There's just you, if you can have an empty mind and you're looking at the world, you're mirroring the world. That is, there's no identity, there's no sort of spirit center separating you from the world. In that moment, there's just the world mirrored. It's the content of consciousness. I mean, we all, we all experience this. You don't have to be a Zen monk to do this. If anytime you see something that surprises you, come around the corner and see, you know, whatever, a fire truck racing down the street. There's a moment, there's a, the first moment of surprise when you're just all eyes and you just see the fire truck. Then you step back and start thinking about it. I wonder what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. But in that first moment, that's that mirroring moment. So that's part of the argument. That's just like the, the, the skimpiest little outline of the argument of the first part of the book. Well, in the book, you use the term wild mind, wild earth, you know, the title of the book repeatedly. You return to it again and again. And, you know, although it may be self-explanatory and it's a simple term, it also holds a great deal. And I wonder if you could unpack the term for us and what it means um, and how you're using it and how you're expanding and exploring it. Well, there's that. I mentioned just a a moment ago the idea that we normally think of the wild as everything other than human. So this is the idea of wild mind as consciousness as wild, just like earth is wild. We think of earth as nature or wild, but the idea is incorporating consciousness into that. It's easy for us to say, well, we're animals, we're bodies, uh, like any other animal, any other body, to that extent, it's easy to think of us as part of the earth. It's much more difficult to see, to experience mind or self or identity as wild, as no different from everything else. And then that's what the book is, you know, trying to work through. Um, how do we rewild mind, I guess you could say. And you describe how foundational stories of our Western Christian paradigm, how they're based on this idea of a a self-enclosed human realm that is separate from everything else, and that this paradigm is a wound, one uh, so complete we can't even see it anymore 
for it defines the very nature of what we assume ourselves to be. And yet, at the same time, however deeply we have forgotten it, we must still be wild in our original Paleolithic nature, wild and kindred to wild earth, you say, and that our kinship is itself a truly primordial ethics, an ethics before question and argument. Can you explain that? Maybe I'll just, to start that answer, I'll read the first paragraph of the book. Before intention and choice, before ideas and understanding and everything we think we know about ourselves, we love this world around us. How can that be? How can we love all this when our cultural assumptions tell us in so many ways that we humans are fundamentally other than nature? and that nature's only real value is how it supports our well-being. There's no love in that. Doesn't love require kindred natures? And what is kinship with wild earth but wild mind? Mm. Well, there's a really wonderful job of, I guess, simply explaining wild earth and wild mind as well and linking it to kinship. And that kinship, to sort of go circle back to your question, that kinship, I think was there in the Paleolithic. For Paleolithic hunter-gatherers, like the Paleo-Indians in North America, there was no sense of that they were radically different from anything else. All the animals had the same status as humans. It was assumed that they all had sort of rich interior lives, that they had social lives. And there was no, I mean, in in the West, there is this broad assumption that the world is really here for us. Humans are what it's all about. And that's that radical separation. In the Christian myth, we're spirits here on earth sort of working out our divine um, fate. And so we're kind of here as aliens from somewhere else, and we're going to, it's a proving ground where we're tested, and then we go back to our real home, which is in some this spirit realm called heaven where God lives. Well, that kind of idea was completely absent in um, for the Paleolithic. So there was this consciousness identity was completely woven into um, the ecosystem, the word we would use now. And I think that changed the sense we have now began when Paleolithic hunter-gatherers started um, settling into Neolithic agricultural villages And then at that point, there was a separate human space. It's the village and the cultivated fields around it. Hunter-gatherers didn't have that. They're just wandering through, quote-unquote, the wild wilderness. Uh, Of course, that idea would make no sense to them because there's no separation. So they would, would, if they could understand that, they would just say, it's all wilderness, I'm wilderness, everything is wilderness. So the, in the Neolithic, people settled into villages, so suddenly there's a separate human space, and they started manipulating or exploiting nature in the, in the form of domestic animals and plants. So as opposed to just moving through um, the ecosystem, they're setting up these human, separate human realms within the ecosystem. And then next, I think, is was writing, because for pre-literate peoples, the mind worked like anything else, like weather or like a stream flowing. It's, it's, it was just this constant flowing of, you know, thinking, going through it, it, thinking, appearing and disappearing. But once you can write things down, then that 
mental realm suddenly starts looking timeless and different from everything, radically different from the world around us. And I think that's what really created this interior, this sense of an interior, what became with the Greeks and the Christians, a kind of soul, this thing that's actually made of different stuff. It's made of spirit stuff instead of matter, different stuff from the earth. That came, I think, from, from writing. These giant transformations in the structure of consciousness and the structure of what it is to be human happen not because of like ideas changing and developing, but because of material changes. That is the change from hunter-gatherer to agrarian, the change from sort of wandering to a village, the change from oral tradition to written. That's a technological change a material change, and that's what transformed consciousness. The Greeks took that material change and they mythologized it into the soul. Uh, And then, of course, Genesis, uh, the creation of the world in Christianity, says humans are supposed to. The world is here for humans. It was created for humans to use, to dominate, to exploit, you know, in their trial here to see if they're righteous or not. So at the end of that, you've got sort of the formula. That's, that's the sixth extinction uh, as already built into that structure thousands of years ago. It just took thousands of years for us to build up the capabilities through which that instrumental exploitative relation to landscape and earth and the 10,000 things became so catastrophically powerful. In the book, you write about how over the last few centuries here in the West, there has been a, a simmering revolution of sorts unfolding, a uh, revolution that has been challenging this dominant human-centric paradigm that emerged from that Christian model um, out of Genesis and that has been seeking to return to a more ancient paradigm of kinship and connection with the earth that was so central to so many ancient and indigenous cultures as well as you described, our original Paleolithic nature, um, and that this revolution, uh, one that's grown dramatically in the last few decades uh, with the impacts of climate change, colonialism, and capitalism pushing people to examine the root causes of these crises, is not the first such revolution to take place, that it has a precedent um, in ancient China that we can look to. Can you talk about this? So to start in the, in the West, I sort of trace out these parallel developments. The development in China was um, like 3,000 years before the one in the West, which began with the Enlightenment, but it really took hold at the end of the 18th century. So here's Europe. They're largely in the thrall of the whole, that whole Christian um, worldview. And this is just an amazing thing to me, and that what happened was people in North America were talking with Native American elders and writing travel books of travel writing about traveling among Native people in North America. Well, these books and these accounts became very popular in Europe, especially among intellectuals. And one of the things that they took from these accounts was this whole different idea of the relation of human and nature. That is, prior to this, nature was considered sort of evil, something that had to be tamed and brought into God's order. 
And this Native American view was a view of kinship, of belonging to um, the landscape and the ecosystem. So this had a huge impact on a lot of major thinkers like the German Romantics and Alexander von Humboldt, who was a gigantic superstar uh, naturalist scientist whose books were on the, on the desk of Thoreau and Whitman, Rousseau. But, but I talk more about the impact on the British Romantic poets because those poets, then their poems are sort of articulating this newly found uh, kinship and wonder at the natural world as a kind of antidote to the industrial age alienation of urban life with all of its commercialism and uh, sort of in the whole industrial realm. So this is Wordsworth and Shelley and Coleridge. With them, they, they start discovering this just wonder at nature. What we take for granted now, this sense that nature is this wonderful, sustaining place, was un, really not, not known in the West until the British Romantics and the, the German Romantics, the late 18th century. So then that idea, again, which came largely from Native Americans, went to Europe, transformed Wordsworth, for instance, and then it came back to America through those, those writers when Thoreau and Emerson read them. So it comes back to Thoreau, it, and it influences um, the intellectual, intellectual history of the 19th century in the U.S. Um, Whitman and John Muir, who helped found the Sierra Club, and on to the modern environmental movement and this thing we take for granted, this sense of love for the natural world, kinship with the natural world, that's where it came from. It was this transformation that was catalyzed, generated by Native American sort of quote, philosophy, quote-unquote. Now, in ancient China, the same kind of thing happened. There was a, a, a monotheistic system, very similar in its basic outlines to Christianity, that fell apart, and then the philosophers we know of as the seminal Chinese philosophers were trying to rebuild um, a philosophical system out of the ashes of that monotheism. And they were very empirically minded, like we are. And so what they built was, what's relevant for us is the Taoism. The Tao Te Ching is the earliest um, book in, in Taoism, and that dates from around 600 BCE. But it's mostly made out of fragments of ancient, maybe even Paleolithic, or descended from Paleolithic wisdom traditions. That is, it's, it's sort of was compiled by gathering fragments from this wisdom tradition, and an oral wisdom tradition, and um, editing them, translating them into ch classical Chinese, and, um, and building them into a book. So, and then Taoism becomes Chan Buddhism, which we know uh, in, the, in America you will know as Zen Buddhism. So those Taoism and Zen Buddhism are sort of China's ecocentric philosophical system. That is, in the Tao Te Ching, in the, the early Taoist tradition, they speak always of the Tao, which is this sort of generative tissue of reality of the earth. That's what Tao is. It's a very empirical um, idea. And that's referred to over and over as female, as a mother. So it goes back to a time when cultures were built around this sense that the sacred is this just the generative force of the earth, of transformation. 
So that's the so that's the, sort of the connection, and then the book sort of in the end says, well, the Paleolithic model is pretty difficult. Isn't that useful for us now? Even though everything came from it, that is the, the Chinese transformation and the Western transformation really grew out of the Paleolithic way of seeing the world. In both cases, that Paleolithic went underground for a century or two or three, and then reemerged as the Tao Te Ching, the Taoism, or as what well, Romanticism, and then on into sort of the modern environmental movement. But the Paleolithic is a little less useful for us because that's a material culture that's just completely gone. You know, we're we're not ever going to be hunter gatherers again. We're not going to wander um, the wilderness. However, ancient China, that system is useful because ancient Chinese culture is virtually the same structurally as us. It's a it was a diversified market economy. They had money. They had they were bureaucrats working in offices. Um, they were intensely textual, highly, highly educated, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's why um, in Wild Mind, Wild Earth, I, I spend time trying to build out and explain how the Chinese system works to, so, that, so that we can see how it might be useful for us here in the West today. And how do you feel it is different i mean this this ethics that emerged out of the paleolithic era that influenced the ancient chinese cultures and led to the dao de jing and to chan buddhism and zen buddhism how does it need to be different now if we're going to take these valuable ancient ways of being in relationship and kinship with the earth uh, as we're dealing with the complex issues of a modern society dealing with the sixth extension yeah, I don't think it needs to be very different. There are a lot of Zen Buddhists around. It seems to work uh, here and now. No, it doesn't have to be much different. You know, this book is arguing that the real driver of the sixth extinction is a bundle of philosophical assumptions, unthought, unquestioned assumptions. And those assumptions, you know, they all, this is, so this is all operating uh, in the mental realm. And the sort of Taoist, Chan, Buddhist, I use the Chan as the Chinese word for Zen. They're all about self-cultivation, and that's where these assumptions operate. They operate in consciousness, in our minds. And that's where you have to examine them, or, you know, and a culture has to examine them and start thinking about changing them, like ancient China did. And like I said, a lot of this work has been done over the last 200 years in the West, so no, I don't I don't I don't think it has to be different. I think it has to be a decision that we're going to cultivate this other different way of seeing the world. Um and it is a kind of self-cultivation in the end. You know, most environmental books now are about practical technological innovation or social changes that, that have to happen. My argument is that's not going to work. That's not going to happen. It requires a transformation in the, our assumptions about the nature of what we are and what the world is. Otherwise, that instrumental and exploitative relation will, um, will remain. Even if some people want to preserve a piece of land, that's how they want to sort of use it. Other people want to frack natural gas out of it. That's how they want to use it. Because you're sharing the assumption that the piece of land is something to use, 
then it's just a disagreement. But if there were an assumption that that land, the animals on it have equal, their self-realization is equally important to ours, then the whole conversation changes dramatically. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I found very interesting is that you talk about how despite the widespread ecological advocacy that can be attributed to the modern environmental movement, the Western philosophical tradition it's based on is ungrounded and that the current environmental movement sense of kinship, it lacks the depths of a Taoist Chan cosmology or a Paleolithic nature at its heart. And yes, it may be on the verge of integrating that, and there's a lot of efforts to support that, but it still lacks that grounded sense that, um, that Chan and, and Taoist philosophies offered. Yeah, and that, and that might be the whole reason for this book is saying, oh, here's where you ground it. It's not that hard. It's not that foreign. It's not foreign, really. This transformation in the West has already gotten us almost there. You know, a lot of people are there. But, you know, government leaders aren't there. Industry leaders aren't there. They're still operating in the old mode. So, yeah, it's it's there. It, we, you know, we just need to ground it, right? You say you don't offer solutions to tackling the sixth extinction and the environmental crisis, but you do put a lot of emphasis on the practices that emerge from Taoism and Chan Buddhism and how they can help heal wounds, the wound of consciousness that was torn from wild ethics, you say, and that today we might call these practices that emerged in the Taoist and Chan Buddhist schools as a deep ecological practice. Yeah, I mean, just for instance, uh, uh, meditation, which any, you know, any, you don't have to go to a Zen monastery to do it. If you just sit quietly and watch what's going on in your head, that's how Chan meditation starts. You realize very quickly that, oh, I am watching the thoughts go through my head. I am not those thoughts, which is what we assume we are. We assume the sort of the soul, spirit, whatever you call it, identity center is the center of rational thought, of thinking. Like, that's Descartes' bedrock. After he strips everything you can't know for absolute certain, he comes down to, I think, therefore I am, I think. So thinking is his bedrock. But here you are in five sec- after five seconds of Chan meditation, and you see, oh, not so. I am this kind of quiet awareness watching thoughts come and go, come and go, come and go. So already we have taken a big step toward integrating consciousness with Earth, because it's that thought process, it's that whole interior realm of, of thinking and feeling and memory that we assume is us. That's what separates us out from, from the rest of the world, right? So you, you sit for five or ten seconds and you see that you're not that, you are just this awareness. Then you sit for a little bit, little bit longer and maybe your thoughts slow down a little and you can sort of watch how they are working. And you see that what's happening in your head is thoughts appear out of nowhere, they evolve through their transformations and then they disappear and new thoughts appear. So there's this like appearance, evolution, disappearance. That's what goes on in the natural world is things appear, they go through their lives and they disappear um, you can think of it like the seasons. Uh, winter is a kind of pregnant emptiness. Spring emerges out of that. It flourishes in life, flourishes in summer, and then dies back into that emptiness of winter in the, in the autumn. You realize, oh, my thoughts are doing the same thing 
that the 10,000 things do, the 10,000 things in empirical reality. And then you realize, oh, well, they're part of the same tissue. Things emerge out of emptiness, live their lives and disappear into emptiness. That happens in, in the head. And so that's another radical reweaving of consciousness and wildness. There you're starting to see what I mean by wild mind. You explain in the book, it's peppered throughout, uh, that this practice, this Taoist, this Zen Chan uh, meditation practice, which leads to um, empty mind, leads to a deep mirroring of the cosmos and in turn a celebration of the cosmos. And so there is a deep seeing uh, you describe it as, or an experience that can come from this space that you could also say is a practice that can heal the wounds of consciousness. If you keep meditating beyond where I was describing, pretty soon your thoughts will start falling silent, and then you are just inhabiting that pregnant emptiness. And that's sort of the end place for um, Chan Buddhism. I mean, not that that's all it's about is getting there. It's not. But that's what the Zen people call empty mind. In that empty mind, if at that moment you open your eyes there's your, and your mind is emptied of thought, emptied of content, whatever you look at is mirrored directly and immediately inside of you. That's, what, that's what's going on. It's just this mirroring. And at that point... Whatever you are looking at, whether it's a subway car or um, a wild peak someplace, that is the content of consciousness. That is identity. And that's that's another radical reweaving of consciousness and landscape and the world. And that's, that's why that poem is so important, because that's what it is. It's a poem of that mirrored seeing that comes at the end of a certain amount of Chan practice and that reweaves consciousness with the world around it. And that was the fundamental pursuit for the Taoists and for the Chan slash Zen Buddhists, was reweaving consciousness with landscape, with the Tao, with the generative tissue of things. Exactly what I'm saying is necessary to really deal with the sixth extinction that's going on now. It's not going to happen until we are rewoven with um, the earth and the, and the, and its creatures. So maybe I'll read the poem again, and then you can just maybe hear it differently because now you're hearing it as this. Really, it's a Chan medit poem of it comes at the end of Chan meditation of that mirroring. Is that okay? Yeah, please read it. Egrets, robes of snow, crests of snow and beaks of azure jade, they fish in shadowy streams. Then startling away into flight, they leave emerald mountains for lit distances. Pear blossoms, a tree full, tumble in the evening wind. So you see, that's why that leap from the egrets to the pear blossoms is so interesting or profound, because there, there is no thought process going on. There is no thought process driving this poem. It's just the whole egret mountain thing, and then suddenly the next image, which is completely different, no, um, no real relation to what had come before. It's just perception, perception, perception. No logic, no reason, no thought process. Hence, it's a kind of meditative practice. Mm-hmm. 
one of the things that you explore also is how in this space of deep seeing, there is an emergence of love that comes forth, um, that kinship, that connection when what you are seeing is a mirror of what is unfolding inside of you, that that creates a certain bond, this weaving as you describe it, and that is one of love, which seems to be so central if we are going to find a path forward uh, individually or collectively that is different than the philosophical framework of the West's modern experiment, which was not grounded on love for, for the earth. Do you feel that it's possible to move beyond an individual experience of love into something that is more societal as we grasp with these challenges? Well, it really is societal only if it's all the individuals. But yeah, that love is is there if you're not separate for something, if it's total kinship, or even like those egrets in that moment of seeing the egrets and the pear blossoms, uh, that's the content of consciousness. That's the content of identity. So the ethics becomes kind of radical, and that is whatever you do to one of those egrets, if you take your shotgun out and you, and you shoot it, you're doing it to yourself um, because there's no, there's no real difference between you and the egret. And Mencius, one of the old Chinese philosophers, even says that whatever you do to, to the world, you do to yourself, you know, in a, in a very real way. And that's, you know, maybe that's part of that wound that you've mentioned a couple of times, is that we're constantly tearing ourselves apart, but we don't quite realize it. Mm. So, so what is this wild ethics? You know, obviously we've been speaking about it maybe more indirectly, but if you had to distill it down as we really try to re-examine, you know, what is the ethical framework that we can live our lives with? Well, the, the, I think the Paleolithic ethical framework is simply, I mean, the hunter-gatherers having no separation between themselves, no radical distinction between human and non-human. You know, they thought everything else was kindred. They Literally, they thought if you went out to hunt and you're hunting a deer, the deer is your sister or your brother or maybe your ancestor or maybe more precisely past future forms of yourself because I think the ethic was you hunted with sort of prayers and sacrifice and humility. You're asking a deer, a brother or a sister or an ancestor to give its life for you, but you know that the next time around, it's going to be asking you to give your life for it. So it's this beautiful web of life that they're participating in, and it has an ethics. You do you wouldn't you'd never go out and kill your sister just for sport, just to prove you're a, a man. I think that's a pretty radical ethics that we come to if we once we start unraveling that very detached. Western self with its instrumental and exploitative relation. I mean, I'm here in Vermont, and in Vermont, Native Americans lived here, well, like everywhere in North America. They lived here in Vermont for over 10,000 years. The ecosystem was basically intact. Europeans got here, and and that's because they had that ethic, that ethical system built into their fundamental um, cultural assumptions. The assumptions that guided their lives, and they didn't ask, they didn't think about them, they didn't, they didn't question them. They were simply the assumptions, the unthought assumptions. When the Europeans got here with their unthought assumptions, they had clear cut the whole state within a, a century, and those two, those two outcomes—one, an intact ecosystem after ten thousand years, and the other, 
a completely devastated ecosystem after a century or less, those are philosophical differences. Those are differences in the cultural assumptions. That's what drove those two things. It's not technology. It's not like now people, you know, we're, we're talking about how technology could save us or how we need to change our behavior to save um, humans, you know, to save us. That's what the, all of the climate change discussion is about, is uh, avoiding disruptions to the human project. And that's what I'm afraid is as long as the human project is the, the center, the be-all and end-all of planet Earth, uh, I don't think I don't think we're going to get very far. Mm. You spoke about how, as relevant as Chinese Taoist and Chan teachings are at this time, and and the practices that came from those traditions, that are gateways to rekindling that sense of kinship with the living Earth, that the greatest teacher at this time might be the sixth extinction that is um, unfolding around us, um, which you described also as a great vanishing that this might be the teacher that helps rekindle this relationship that Taoism and, and Chan was trying to do? Like I start the book, I, I read that little beginning that somehow we love this world uh, and we feel kinship with it, but how can that be because of our Western assumptions? And then I talk about how, well, actually there's this cultural movement beginning with the romantics that is changing our cultural assumptions and has you know, done a fair amount to change them but not enough. But then think about the sixth extinction is really teaching us how much we do love this world because a lot of us find it unthinkable. It's so painful. And if we're feeling all that grief, the destruction is so massive and we feel it so deeply, that's teaching us. That's saying, look how kindred you are. Look how much you love this. You didn't know this 200 years ago. You don't know it enough now. But Every day, more species lost, more individuals lost. So that's where I sort of start with the idea that the sixth extinction is now a great teacher. And I hope that's a thick with irony, I guess. You don't really want to pay that kind of price for a teacher, but we don't have a choice. You also talk about how this process of experiencing this grief and trying to learn what this experience is teaching us is also revealing to us our most profound and beautiful selves at the same time. We're so much more than we think we are. We are so much more than just this little bundle of obsessions going on in our head. And that's a that's a beautiful thing to discover. And in a sense, yeah, the sixth extinction is helping teach us that because it's teaching us that we are profoundly kindred with the ecosystem, with the wild, with the 10,000 things. That's the whole point of Taoist and Chan Buddhist practices, to discover that vast self that we are. One way I think of it is, and this is to put ancient Taoist and Chan and even Paleolithic uh, insight into modern scientific terms, we think of ourselves as this little bubble of obsessions and memories going on in our head that's detached from everything else. That's the wound. That sounds pretty isolated and bleak to me. But the scientific account of the universe is that the cosmos evolved one generation after generation of suns, and in the third generation, our sun and our planet. And on our planet, the cosmos evolved life forms, like us, and some of those life forms developed eyes like us, 
And so when we look out at the world, we are quite literally the cosmos looking out at itself. That's total, the consciousness totally woven into the cosmos, into earth, into landscape. And even when we think about the cosmos, if we, when we think about the sixth extinction, we're the cosmos thinking about itself. Uh, and when we feel it, when we feel love and grief, that's the cosmos feeling itself. That's our greatest, that's our biggest self, and it's kind of been hidden from us by the sort of Western intellectual history and the, the assumptions we've inherited. David, thank you for your time today and for our conversation. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Kalyapeya Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our new theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas and Logan Stanley. This podcast is edited by Ben Solitiano and Devin Talatin. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter, order our new print edition, and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.